Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories, learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jonathan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Hey, it's always my pleasure. Yeah. So we had you here uh, probably a couple of years ago when we were called Blogcast FM. But since then, you know, quite a bit has changed in in both of our lives and in both of our businesses. Uh, And we have a lot of new listeners. So tell us a a bit about yourself, your background, uh, your story, and and sort of the journey before the journey that has led you to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm I'm sort of the uh, the mad creative lemonade uh, stand entrepreneur kid who took a uh, took a, a a detour as uh, as a a, a a hedge fund lawyer and a, and a securities uh, lawyer for a short bit of time, and then uh, and then ducked my head back into uh, the world of entrepreneurship and fitness and wellness, and more recently uh, media creation and. Uh, um, because uh, I, I just I had a point in the law where I realized that uh, both uh, I was physically unwell and I had no desire to actually you know go and get the the carrot that was being dangled in front of me. So uh, so I ended up in the, the world of entrepreneurship. I launched and built a couple of fitness businesses and sold those. And then uh, really the last five years or so, I've been hanging out and creating um, around the media, you know, and that's taken the form of a couple of books. I'm working on my third book right now, um, building a couple of online ventures. Uh, the latest being this thing called good life project, which is a sort of a combination, um, media and education venture. And, um, really just, uh, trying to reconnect with the things that light me up and trying to create experiences, uh, that, that inspire people to do the same. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into this idea of reconnecting with uh, things that light us up. Uh, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that you you took a detour, ended up as a lawyer, and I think this detour is a pretty common thing for adults. Uh, and I, you know, a lot of people on this show seem to have this detour. And I've asked you know a similar version of this question to a lot of people, but it, reconnecting with that thing that lights us up, I mean, it, it can seem very esoteric. And I'm, I'm wondering how do we do it? I mean, you say you want to inspire other people to do the same, and and I guess in a lot of ways, so do I. Uh, and that's kind of led me down this path. But I mean, how do we get back to that place? Yeah, and and I think the big missing step for a lot of people, and it's taken me years to actually um, figure this out, is that you know, so that, and this is part of what we explore in a lot of the stuff that we do now. You know, is this word alignment has become a huge word in my vocabulary in my life, and it's you know, it, it, you know, you can't go out into the world and and reconnect with that thing that lights you up, and then align your actions with it and build something substantial, contribute to the world in a way that's deeply aligned. If you don't actually know who you are, what what matters to you, what you care about. So the thing is, nobody actually lays out that process. It's not taught in B school. Um, and the only times I have seen it taught is sort of in a very uh, sort of metaphysical way, which if that's your bent and your orientation and that process works for you, that's awesome. But I'm kind of more science-minded. So um, so I've really spent a lot of time over the last few years you know, doing a lot of work and figuring out, okay, um, 
what am I good at? What do I love? What are my beliefs? What are my values? What are my orientations socially, risk, creatively? Um, and to, to really get a much deeper understanding. So that there's, a, there's a pretty intense process of self-inquiry that you need to go through in a deliberate fashion before you can get to the next step of saying, you know, like, how do I align my actions with um, my essence, with what lights me up? Um, you know, most people have so much trouble making decisions these days. Uh, and I don't actually believe that it's a decision-making problem because, you know, like, well, I'm just indecisive. I don't have information. It's because um, how do you decide what's, you know, what path to travel down, what's aligned with you, um, what's going to make the most sense when you have no idea who you are and what matters to you and all, you know, all of those things. And when you actually get a really good beat on that, decision making becomes so much easier and you have a much better sense of where to allocate your, your energies. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, I want to dig deeper into this whole process of self inquiry piece because I think this is a very, very critical thing and, and really, uh, I see that process as a, as a big part of the journey too, because you know you said decisions become easier as things become clearer to you. I mean, I think this year was one of the years in which I was able to make decisions about which projects to work on, what things to to focus my efforts on, much easier than I ever have before. But it took a, it took five years. It really yeah. it took a long time to say you know unmistakable creative, unmistakable media, the instigator experience, the stuff that we're working on now is really. Um, I think what I've wanted to do all along, but it took a lot of trial and error. And I'm really curious, you know, what does this process of self-inquiry look like? How can we bring it into our lives? And I mean, how do you, how do you guide people through it? Yeah. You know, it's, um, and, and it very often takes many years and for people, sometimes it takes decades, you know, we're, we're, we're so obsessed with instant now mm-hmm. that when it doesn't come immediately, we feel like, uh, either I'm a failure or I'm not engaged in the right process and, uh, or we just give up, you know, or like, well, I'm just never going to know. I don't, you know, I didn't take the test and it told me why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's really, you know, it's a shame. So part of what we've been trying to do and what we're, we've been building behind the scenes at Good Life Project for the last couple of years in our programming is trying to figure out, okay, is there a process that, that mimics my own personal journey and that we can take people through on an accelerated basis that asks them a lot of questions. And a lot of this actually got kickstarted probably about five years ago, four or five years ago now, when I was kind of going along, rocking, you know, just doing my own thing, being an entrepreneur. And I was approached by the COO of a small public company to potentially join their executive team and and pretty much remake the brand. And he was new to the company. The head of talent was new to the company. Um, and they were really just, they wanted to shake things up. And uh, I went through a battery of interviews. And, and the whole time, everybody there kept asking me, they're like, we're looking at your life. We're looking at what you do every day. And it seems pretty damn awesome. Why in the world would you want to be us? Why would you want to join you know, a, a company again? And my answer, I was very honest because I didn't feel like I needed the job. I was just, I was curious. I was interviewing them and I said, well, I, I honestly don't know. I said, um, the reason I'm engaging in this process is because I want to find out um, what would it take for me to potentially um, join a larger company? What would need to be present? And is it present here? So I, that started this really fascinating process of inquiry for me that led me down this rabbit hole of trying to identify what are the qualities of work that engage me deeply that need to be there on a day-to-day basis. And it started in the context of this analysis of, you know, like what would, 
what would potentially inspire me to move from being an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur to playing a very entrepreneurial role within a large organization and tapping the resources, which, which I'm still open to. Um, and then it, it really became this much, much bigger process of inquiry. So it started with me um, developing what I call my, my, my five uh, um, contribution preferences, which is really analyzing all the different qualities of work um, uh, and, and that I need to be present in whatever I do, no matter what the venture is, whether it's entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, you know, corporate-based, or volunteer. And, um, and then I just started to really pile on and do a lot more research and come in contact with people who are extraordinary teachers and mentors, um, <laughs> many who we're now fortunate to have on faculty at GLP, mm-hmm. and uh, in the world of positive psychology, and which is very different from pop psychology. Positive psychology was started by uh, uh, Martin Seligman, who was then the head of the American Psychological Association, and basically said, you know, turned around to the association and said, gentlemen, we're, you know, we, we've got a half-baked cake here, the world of psychology has been about taking people from being ill to baseline. You know, they, they defined being okay as the lack of illness. He said, but that's not okay. You know, we need to figure out how to take people from zero to flourishing. And there's been a, a whole field that's now grown around that over the last few decades. So I became fascinated with this and with the metrics that they're using and you know things like strengths and we've we've heard a lot about strengths lately and there are all sorts of there are now a, a bunch of different assessments that you can use um, to help with that but you know how what are what are my strengths um, you know where are those things where when I'm working within those strengths I contribute the best I feel most alive and things come to me the easiest you know and how do I build um, my decision making and my investment of energy is around there. So, so we started to fold in a whole bigger um, basket of of sort of science validated metrics into this process of self inquiry, and and I did a lot of this um, just for my own process to better understand who I am and what to say yes and no to. And now, um, you know, with uh, with the latest venture, we've, we've actually started to fold a lot of those in as we do instructional design for other people. To see if we can actually accelerate the process, like you said, okay, it's taken five years. Honestly, that's pretty fast, you know, <laughs> because and so many people come to me, and and it, I, the the sad thing to me is that so few people in life initiate any deliberate process of self inquiry to let them figure this out, and the ones that do figure it out very often, it's not through a, a deliberate process; it's through dumb luck. Mm-hmm. You know, they happen to just step into something where the, the opportunity is aligned really well with the fiber of their being, with what lights them up. And they're like, sweet, you know, but for most people, they don't, it, it doesn't happen. It's this process. And you, you actually, you know, it starts with self-inquiry. And then it starts with, once you have that baseline of really understanding what needs to be there on a personal level, now how do I go out into the world and explore a number of different possibilities to see what best aligns with that. And when when you start to find that, you know, and and generally it's also not like you find one thing, it's like, boom, everything aligns. Like you run experiments, and with each experiment, you get a little bit more information about what needs to be there and what doesn't. And eventually you either you either find or if you can't find it, you create the path that allows you to flourish most. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. Um, you know, I want to ask you another question around this process of self-inquiry, and, and this is kind of relevant to your, your previous book, uh, you know, the most recent one, Uncertainty. I mean, the process of self-inquiry, you know, the last five years of my life and even, you know, looking forward, what I see is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm really, really curious uh, how we navigate uh, the uncertain nature of this path of self-inquiry without letting it really, really destroy us or letting it get us down. I mean, obviously, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be things that happen that we don't want uh, because I don't think we're ever getting out of, you know, out of those things. My, my friend Meg Warden says she's like, you know, there's you're never going to have, you know, uh, any of those things without suffering. And she said the things that are often most painful become our greatest teachers. But I'm really curious from a standpoint of uh, dealing with this, you know, uncertainty about money, uncertainty about life, uncertainty about, you know, what all of this path means for our life as a whole and how we navigate that in a way that actually allows us to, to flourish. Yeah. I, I mean, look, there are only two things that I'm certain about. And the truth is there are only two things that any human being can be certain about in their lives. And one is they were born and the other is that they're going to die. Everything that happens between those two points, you have varying amounts of control over. And that's actually a really good thing. You know, and the the challenge is that um, our brains are kind of softwired. I don't use the word hardwiring anymore when it comes to the brain because as the science of neuroplasticity evolves, we're learning more and more that um, the wiring is is increasingly changeable. But by the time we reach adulthood, most of us are are kind of wired to experience taking actions that move us into a place of ambiguity or uncertainty where we don't know it's going to end as pain. Um, you know, the, the, the fear center in our brain, the amygdala lights up and that literally causes this fight or flight state. It sends a course of, um, of hormones. It lights up our endocrine system that sends hormones through coursing through our body that make us feel physically uneasy. And we want to retreat from that. We want to take action. We want that feeling to go away. So the, you know, and, and, you know, back in the prehistoric days, that was a great thing. It removed us from danger. The challenge is, you know, we live in so much chronic uncertainty now that, that, it just makes us feel constantly at unease. And, and, and fMRI studies show us now that, that when we're, we're faced with the opportunity to make decisions in the face of uncertainty, we don't know how it's going to end. It lights up. It creates that same unease in our minds and in our bodies. And we want it to not be there. It doesn't feel good. So what we do is um, instead of learning how to get more comfortable in that place and accepting the fundamental notion that life is uncertain – um, we run from it and we try and lock down as much of our lives and as much of the future as humanly possible rather than saying, you know what, there is nothing that that is genuinely worth doing where the future is 100% guaranteed. And, and maybe there's an exception to that. I don't know. It's a pretty extreme statement. But, you know, for for most people um, – you know, there's there's magic. There's extraordinary, extraordinary, juicy, life-enhancing magic in the process of creating things, in the process of doing things that are novel, where you have the opportunity to learn and grow and connect. And if you only take action in the face of some level of high certainty, you know, by definition, the only way that can happen is either if you've done it before or somebody else has done it before, in which case you're stripping away all the, that gorgeousness, you know, and you're just going through the motions of replicating what's been done before. And yes, you know, so then you don't feel that underlying unease of the uncertainty of action taking in the face of uncertainty, but you also don't ever feel that immense joy, that satisfaction, that esteem of doing something 
um, extraordinary, doing something new, of you know, bringing something to life. So we take so much of that from ourselves simply because we're wired in a way that, that makes us experience action in the face of uncertainty as, as physical and emotional unease, and we don't want to feel it, so we back away. Rather than taking the alternative approach, which is sort of like a much more Eastern approach, which is just accepting the fact that um, you know, most of the best stuff in life happens when you take action in the face of uncertainty, let me A, own the fact that that's reality, B, um, uh, you know, take action in the face of it, and C, develop a set of practices that allow me to find a greater sense of ease and equanimity in the context of that consistent action taking in the face of uncertainty so that I can go out there and I can do all those amazing things in life without it destroying me. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I I love the idea of, of, you know, the fact that if it's it's done by somebody before or, you know, something you've done before, the only are the only two things that are certain. And I look at all the creative endeavors that we've launched this year, every one of them was a gamble of some sort with no idea, you know, whether it's going to work or not. You know, when we did the instigator experience, same thing. It's like, let's try something that's never been done before. Let's attempt to to push the envelope a little bit. It may blow up in our face, but not. But, you know, I, I want to go back to something you said um, in this in, in this part of our conversation about developing a set of practices to, to actually handle all of this. Because, you know, in the face of uncertainty, even when we take action, there are going to be things that actually, you know, are, are painful and things that don't work out. And so, uh, one, how you deal with the things that don't work out Two, how you cultivate a set of practices, you know, and, you know, and also bounce back from those things that don't work out. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to figure out which rabbit hole we should get on first here. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, if you've been interviewed well, by me, I, I set up rabbit holes. Yeah. <laughs> so they're kind of the same thing, actually. Um, you know, fundamentally, I, I don't know any entrepreneur or artist or maker who has who has flourished long term without building some sort of daily mindset practice mm-hmm. um, for me it's mindfulness uh, you know that that is my daily practice and increasingly I explore other things but that's that's where I get to touch stone and there's a lot of research around things like meditation and mindfulness and how it serves as this major reset for your brain um, so what you'll find is actually now at the highest levels, not just in entrepreneurship, but in business, a lot of really top-level executives now, a lot of people in the C-suite are starting to fiercely adopt meditative daily practices. And the reason is because it serves as scaffolding. It allows you to touch stone. It allows you this psychological reset so that when, you have, when your job is to show up, and take action in, in, in the face of less than perfect information. You know, like put things out into the world where you don't know if it's going to work or not. You don't know how it's going to end. When that's your job, then you've got to have this scaffolding. And, and what a, a really growing body of research is showing is that a variety of meditative practices or what I call attentional uh, training um, literally rewires your brain so that you can handle that with far greater ease. It's not an overnight process. It doesn't, you know, you don't just start and then five days later, you're like, sweet, I'm cured. Like, bring on the risk. Um, and we tend to get really frustrated with that because, mm-hmm. especially type A people where a lot of stuff has come to them fairly quickly, you know, like, hey, listen now, like, I'm great at this, I'm great at that. Like, I work harder than anybody else and I always succeed. Well, it's like, you can't actually do that with meditation. You can't do that with mindfulness. 
it takes a while for the physiological changes to happen um, that allow you that sense of ease, that sense of equanimity in the face of, of stress, in the face of uncertainty in action. So, but I think that's, that is absolutely essential. You know, that's one of the, the major things that allows you to do that. Now, um, for me, I said it's mindfulness. Uh, Transcendental med- Meditation, or TM, has, has been this growing thing, especially in the business world these days um, and, and in the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, for other people, uh, you know, like uh, there's um, uh, a doctor named John Rady who wrote a great book called Spark and has a newer book called um, Go Wild Out. And, uh, and, and that whole book was, the Spark was largely about how exercise rewires your brain and is almost as effective at a wide variety of challenges from anxiety to OCD, depression to managing stress as um, you know, the top selling pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's the same thing. Exercise has a very similar reset and rewiring mechanism in the brain that allows you to actually handle this. Now, and and the thing is, it's not that you're okay while you're doing these things. It's that when you do them on a daily basis over time, it creates a level of persistent calm and persistent ability to handle uncertainty and stress and novelty and action mm-hmm. on a level that doesn't exist. Um, you know, it just, it's so hard to find that. So, so th- there's a, a thin slice of people that actually touch down who just are able to handle this better than other people in my research is a very thin slice of humanity. Most other people either suffer a lot or they adopt these practices sometimes without even realizing why they're adopting them that allow them to be okay. So, you know, um, mindfulness and meditation um, and exercise, some form of daily movement, are mission critical for anybody who wants to go out and create something new in the world. Um, you know, so that's that's a part of it. That's the daily practice side of it. And there are other things we go into. But um, you know, the other question you you asked was, how do I deal with sort of you know this process of um, trying new things, making mistakes, um, knowing that you're going to have to do a whole bunch of things, and a bunch of them are not going to work out. You know, and to me, that's that the the huge process there is called reframing. You know, it's basically going into it, saying, "Hey, look, you change the metric for everything that you do." So when I do something these days, um, my metric is my my big quest is not so much what am I building; it's I want to spend um, the greatest amount of each day uh, doing activities that light me up with people who light me up for people who I love to serve. You know, so how do I run experiments every day that give me data to move closer and closer to that point? So my metric now, you know, it's great if I succeed. It's you know, I've got to succeed at least on a level that allows me to make enough money to support my family in New York City, which is not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, so once I hit that baseline, then you know, the big metric for me is how do I run a series of deliberate experiments that where I can learn. So, you know, like success or failure is nice, but the big thing to me is I'm on this quest of gathering data. So my core metric is learning. It's data because that moves me much more quickly to filling in that bigger puzzle of, you know, like knowing what's going to light me up long term and and understanding what needs to be present to just consistently keep building those experiences for life. Um, Even if I'm making, you know, like these experiments along the way that don't work, Things that don't work still contain data, and if your core metric is learning, then you'll value those as much you'll value the you know the supposed successes. 
And if in the early days, especially while you're really figuring out, you know, like what, what, what's your burning desire? What are you, what are you working on? What are you building? What lights you up? You know, if you approach it that way, like I'm going to run a series of deliberate experiments where my core metric, you know, I want that to succeed, but my real core metric is data. It's learning in the name of something much bigger and much longer term, then the failures all of a sudden just become another data set. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to really handle the process with a very different lens. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Would you mind talking uh, specifically about some of your personal failures, like the bigger ones? Because I think it, it's really easy for us to see you and see, you know, two amazing books, this thriving business. And, you know, because all of that effectively buries all the failures. <clears throat> Nobody sees the parts that we didn't want them to see after a certain point. I'd love for you to talk about some of the darker parts of your journey um, and, you know, how they've affected you. Yeah. And, and well, it's kind of funny, actually, you say nobody sees that in the world of um, social media. It's like everybody sees everything all the time. There's nowhere to hide. Um, but uh, some of my biggest failures happened you know, sort of before the world of social media. You know, maybe one of the biggest in business was um, at one point I owned uh, a yoga center in New York City, and the center did really well. And um, but not too long into the business, um, part of my vision was to see if I could actually create the first uh, national, sort of purely systematized franchise. So we went through the entire process of franchising, which costs a lot of money, uh, you know, filing a lot of legal documents, hiring lawyers, creating systems, creating marketing materials. Went out, we actually did two sort of friends and family test franchises to see how I felt about it. Um, and after we did those, I reached a point where I was just like, you know what, this is this is really hard. And yoga, it, well, it's cert- it is systematizable um, to make it that type of business. I wasn't sure that's actually the type of business that I wanted to be in. Um, so I basically I I, I I shut it all down. You know, so we had an entire division. We had a major part of what I thought was going to be my vision going into the business. And a lot of money and a lot of time invested in this and, and, and debt, you know, and I reached a point where I was like, you know what, we could probably make this work, but I actually don't want to because the future that we create is not a future that I want. You know, I thought it would be, mm-hmm. but the more I replace assumptions with data, the more I'm learning it's not. So I shut that entire um, venture down. And during the process of that, with what very often happens with um, entrepreneurs is when you start looking at this other thing, you kind of take your eye off the core business. You know? So what happened over that year or so was that even though we were still doing okay and profitable, the core business was not flourishing the way that it, it could have or should have. So then I had to turn around and you know, like turn all of my energy into going back and saying, okay, you know, lesson learned. Like I know this stuff and now it's time to turn back to my own business, rebuild the core business that we were really flourishing again, spent another probably two, two and a half years, um, paying off the, uh, you know, the debt that we had gotten into in financing, um, the franchise venture and then, uh, you know, continuing on to sort of just keep rocking the core business. So, I mean, huge lesson learned for me, you know, I'm, and, and when I look back did, what did it really suck? Was it a huge blow to my ego? You know, like, did we lose a chunk of money? Well, well hell yeah. You know, was, was that fun? Not at all. But it, looking back, I'm actually kind of glad that I went through that whole experience. Well, yeah, I think actually I am because it reconnected me with some really, really important lessons about business and about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff that I then turn around and again, when I like, when I can zoom the lens out and say, okay, 
now, now that like, you know, I'm repairing the damage, now my big job is what have I learned from this? Like, where's my MBA in this? Where's the education in this? And how can I apply those lessons moving forward? You know, then, then all of a sudden I'm in a very different place moving forward. I mean, people ask me the same question about law school. Like, well, you know, do you regret the fact that you, know, you went to law school, spent all that money and then, you know, practice law? And, uh, and I'm like, no, you know what? Um, that wasn't my long-term path, but, but even for, you know, like two or three key lessons that I learned as a practicing lawyer, you know, like that alone was worth the journey and worth the whole effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think that I find that often those things we fail at, uh, really do end up being powerful teachers, which, which actually makes a perfect setup for, for sort of the next question I want to ask you. You know, you mentioned conducting experiments and then, you know, gathering data and bringing that forward. And, you know, I wonder how we do this in a way that's actually really useful. So, you know, you get the data, how do you bring it into your next experiment and how do you tie all of that together into sort of a mission, uh, a message, uh, that takes you from zero to flourishing, uh, in a way that is scientific that you've talked about. Oh, okay. So two, <laughs> two, two really separate questions yeah. there. You know, like your, your mission and your message is more a public facing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first part is internal. How do you take the data points and turn them into something meaningful for you? And I think, you know, the, the big answer is you've got to be really, I, I've used the word deliberate a whole bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people run these experiments in a very non-deliberate way. They're just like, oh, this looks really cool. Let me go try it. Ah, it's an experiment. If I fail, whatever. If I win, whatever. Right. But then like there's no, there's no postmortem. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, like there's no debrief. There's no, um, okay, well, what have I learned? What has this added to my, the body of knowledge that I have about myself and my understanding of how I want to move forward and, and how I want to make decisions moving forward. And I think that, you know, the word deliberate is the, is the difference maker there. A lot of people run haphazard experiments um, without a bigger frame of saying, okay, my job is to fill in the pieces of the me puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, and the more I do that, the more I align my actions with my essence, the more I become a beacon and the world rallies to me. Right. But um, most people don't do that. Even most people who do run these experiments, they don't do it within that bigger, deliberate uh, data gathering and synthesis frame. Mm-hmm. And I think so. I think a lot of the answer is actually it's not all that hard. It's just that you have to create that overlay and say, okay, you know, like I'm learning more about me. Like, what, where do I see the big gaps? What do I still have questions about? And how can I run an experiment that will in some way, A, you know, potentially succeed? And B, um, give me the data either way, you know, help me fill in that hole in what I see, you know. So how do I, you know, let's say I, I'm, I'm just not sure how, like, what's my risk orientation? Like, how much can I handle? How much, you know, can I put up against the line? And how, you know, do I want to run something really big? So many people, and this includes me, like, I've had a, a lifelong struggle with being a maker and being a mogul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, how much of my, of my struggle is actually built on the fantasy of what life would be like as a mogul versus the reality and how can I test that? You know, so I've had businesses where I've had, you know, I've had, I've had real estate. I've had to, you know, at least two floors in a building in New York city. I've had employees, I've had overhead, I've had, you know, and, and so I, th- that's data for me, you know? So I know how I handle that. I know how it affects me physically and emotionally. And I know very often it's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I look at opportunities that exist right now in back in the world of fitness and entrepreneurship, I mean, 
my you know, I drool because there's mass mass opportunity there to um, to to make a huge impact and do some really big things. But I also know um, how building something on that scale and solving a problem on that scale would affect me. Mm-hmm. And at least at this point, I'm not really I'm not willing to go there because I know what it would do to me personally. I know it would do to the quality of life and my ability to be present in the lives of my wife and daughter right now. So I'm not willing to go there. And and I can make those decisions out of a sense of deeper self-knowledge, um, knowing that, that that may change and evolve over time as I look at potentially different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up knowing uh, that sort of difference between you know the, being a, a mogul or a maker and, and fighting that battle. I think to some degree all of us do that. Uh, and that's a, that's not the easiest choice in the world to make, which um, actually takes us back to, to you know one of the questions I wanted to ask you about uh, was this idea of being still open to the possibility of a job and, and the right job and the right fit. You know, one of the the interesting things that I think has happened uh, as a byproduct of the narrative of sort of, you know, the world of, of, you know, lifestyle design, and I jokingly say to some effect, maybe we can blame Tim Ferriss for some of this, but uh, is we villainized that life. And I think I'm guilty of perpetuating that at times. And I'm really curious, one, to hear your thoughts on on all of that. Um, just from sort of the perspective of the narrative that has been kind of going through the web and, and through the world. Yeah, I, I think it's silly. <laughs> I mean, straight up. Yeah. I hear it all the time and you know, in the world that you, know, you and I tend to both um, rotate in. You know, and, and it's interesting because I come out of a world of sort of like bigger business you know, for a chunk of time. Um, and, and I am not at all I, – I, so a lot of people you know, in our world, you call it the lifestyle design world or the nomadic entrepreneurial world or just you know, like the lifestyle entrepreneur, whatever, whatever language you want to use. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like down with the man. I need to yeah. be in charge. And, and I'm like, do you realize how just completely and utterly ludicrous that is? Um, I don't, I'm sorry, I just don't agree. I, I think it is um, destructive. I think most people come to that position after having a very bad and very often low-level, low-control experience within an organization mm-hmm. and then just walking away from it. Uh, but I, think about it. You know, If you could actually have a substantial role in an organization where you could have a very intrapreneurial role within that organization, meaning you have a fair amount of power, you have a fair amount of responsibility and control, um, and a fair amount of possibility to actually um, ideate and allocate resources to that. And then you actually get to turn around and leverage the resources, the organizational structure, the publicity and marketing engines of a substantial entity Think of the the scale of the impact that you could have mm-hmm. and the time that it would take to get to scale compared to what you could do making twenty five grand out of the back of your car and living a nomadic life. You know, so to automatically just say like you know, hell no to that because you label organizations as the devil, to me it's just not smart. <laughs> yeah. You know, can you look at certain organizations and say ethically, you know, I don't like the culture that they've built, I think, you know, is disrespectful of the human condition or the product that they sell is disrespectful and I can't ethically get on board with it. Sure. 
that's a line in the sand that you can draw, and um, that's fine. But to just you know, like universally label all corporations as the devil, which, which mm-hmm. I see happening so often, I just think is ludicrous. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I think we have villainized the day job. And, I, and you know, the other thing, which you didn't mention in all this, along with that, the stability of a paycheck and a yeah. life of being able to keep your lights on, keep food on the table and not worrying about how's next month going to turn out, how's yeah. next year going to turn no, out. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, I mean, have you ever read the, the book Daily Rituals? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that really struck me when I read that book, and for, for you guys listening, if you haven't read a phenomenal book, and it basically it deconstructs the daily rituals of hundreds of the world's top creators across a wide variety of domains from music to corporations to poetry to painters, all this stuff. One of the things that jumped out at me was the number of top creators who kept their day jobs and would never even consider leaving them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and the thing is, a lot of people don't get about that is that you know, there are day jobs that will absolutely consume every part of you, including all of your time. But there are also day gigs that are, you know, like they're okay. Yeah, they're, they're, it's full time, but it, 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 you know, it doesn't really take a lot of cognitive bandwidth or creative juice. It doesn't really stress you out that much. It might even be like pleasant. You know, you may really enjoy the people that you work for. And then that gives you that baseline level of cognitive and creative bandwidth outside of that and the paycheck that allows you to then go into your creative realm on your off time, on your weekends, in your evenings, and create without the constraint of worrying about how the market is going to receive it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when that happens, very often is when the most amazing art unfolds you know so the notion i am my position on you know like you've got to make your passion your 100 percent day job it has really evolved over the last few years i'm not entirely sold on the fact that that proposition is right for every person yeah i would uh i would completely agree with that in fact you know it's funny i started this on the side of a day job uh, and that made everything a lot easier because i never had to worry it gave me that whole two years of just being able to play and see what would happen yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting to to me is that um, you know, so we have these educational programs, and uh, for the last three years, we've been you know, we've taken groups of people and moved them through a process, and and most people come t- into these programs because they either run a company, or or a business or a practice, or they want to, and um, and many people have you know quit their day jobs or they're about to quit their day jobs, and and even beyond this, you know, just in consulting I've done over the years. I can't tell you how many people I've actually talked into, you know, after they've left, uh, you know, their their day job, either going back to it or getting another one, um, because they jump too fast, mm-hmm. you know. And then you make decisions. You know, so many people they have limited runway, you know, which means you know you've got X dollars in the bank, which means that every decision you make is based not only on what you want to create in your heart, but based on your ability to actually. Put money in the bank before your X dollars runs out. Mm-hmm. That is not the right way to make decisions for most people. That's very often not going to yield the optimal outcome for anybody. Um, but that's the way that you have to start making decisions. And very often you start making bad long-term decisions in the name of short-term revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so I like I've told many people like <laughs> go get just 
go get a workable day job that allows you to build this thing on the side and take a lot longer and make much better decisions about how you're going to do that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears uh, a bit and, and let's start talking about what really you know prompted me to, to bring you back. I mean, you gave a talk at Misfit uh, really prompted by sort of what is this idea of a good life um, and, and how it all happens. And I really loved how much you talked about sort of what you call the three buckets. And I'd love to get into sort of how you define a good life. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about media creation and your thoughts on the future of it uh, as we wrap things up. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's been so interesting for me. I, I, I started Good Life Project in no small way because I wanted to create a business engine that would allow me to travel the world, um, find people who I thought had some piece of the puzzle who had figured something out and sit down with them and then have conversations with them and then turn that around and, you know, just share it with other people. So I spent, you know, the last couple of years doing exactly that and, you know, from just some incredible, incredible people. And these aren't people who just succeeded in business or in the arts, but in life, you know, very great relationships, like great health, things like that. And um, so, so I really started to distill what I was learning from them along with my own experiences in life and in business and tried to say, okay, you know, is there some sort of cohesive framework that I can distill out of all of this that would help? Again, for me, it's all about decision making. Like there's theory is great. But I'm always looking for tools that are actionable, you know, both for me and that I can share with people. And that's where, you know, the pieces start to point towards increasingly this three-bucket model that you were talking about. And essentially the idea is that, you know, living a good life um, is a combination of filling three different buckets on a pretty persistent basis. And, um, and as you can hear, there are sirens in the background because <laughs> we're in the middle of New York City. Um, they're coming because I'm not supposed to share this. It's top secret. So <laughs> they're like, Fields is sharing the model. Let's go shut them down now. Um, so it's, it's as simple as this. Imagine you have three buckets side by side, right? Each bucket, um, will always be limited by the height of the least full bucket. And those three buckets are contribution, connection, and vitality, Right. So in order to actually really flourish, in my experience, in order to live your best life, you've got to have a full contribution bucket. You know, the, what, what are you contributing to the world? You've got to have the fullest possible connection bucket. You know, how am I connected to self-source, people, nature? Um, and the fullest possible vitality bucket. You know, it, it is, is my mind at ease? Is my body at ease and vital and capable? Um, and and the, the idea is that part of what really allows people to flourish on a sustained basis is that um, you're constantly circling around and watering all three buckets. You know, very often what what you'll see is you know people you're at work and like you're working really 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 hard and and you're stuck and like you're banging your head against a wall and like you but you're working so hard you know like you should be able to break through and get to the next level. You're working so hard. You know, and people are like, I need to just keep filling the contribution bucket, you know, just keep putting more and more and more fluid into that bucket, working harder, like giving more energy and more attention to it, not realizing that the thing that's actually stopping that bucket from ever getting any fuller is the fact that your connection and vitality buckets aren't empty. Mm -hmm. You know, so the counterintuitive actual best move is to stop working so hard. And go and re- and start filling your connection buckets and your vitality buckets. And as soon as you do that, 
the contribution bucket just unlocks itself. You know, so it's a little counterintuitive because people are like, well, you mean I have to work less and focus on something entirely different? Yeah. Um, And the more I start to really play with that model and test it, um, the more it's become a guiding force in how I allocate all of my energies on a day-to-day basis. You know, I can pretty much tell you that when I'm banging my head against a wall in a project that I'm working on professionally, it's a really good chance it's because I'm either traveling too much or... I'm not as, you know, like I'm not putting enough energy into uh, being present with my wife or my daughter or I'm not taking care of my body or my health. I'm not exercising. I'm not eating really well, you know, and as soon as I pull back and I actually work on those things, you know, all of a sudden the answers on the work side, the contribution side, they tend to drop from the sky mm-hmm. when I actually take care of the other things. So it's been a really um, important model for me to develop just for myself and the more um the more we start sharing it uh, we actually haven't sort of like th- there's a whole you know bigger document there's probably um, there's probably a book in there I'm, I'm sure at some point um that really breaks down you know like what goes into them and how to how to fill each one but uh um you know the more i share just the basic framework um it's amazing to see light bulbs go on with people and then hear back from people and say holy crap you know like i actually did this and it worked i'm like well that's pretty cool mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's an excuse for me to go surfing in the middle of the day now. Exactly, you know, and it's actually really important for you to do that, you yeah. know. And there's, and there's the beautiful thing is, like I said, when we started this conversation, um, I'm a very science-based guy. I'm, I'm increasingly, I think it's funny, you know, it's, with age, I'm increasingly open to the metaphysical, unexplainable side of life, but still I have this really strong scientific orientation. So pretty much everything in the model is actually, is backed in, in some way by research, you know. So if you go surfing, you know, that's operating on a number of different levels. It's, you know, like it's connecting you with nature. Um, and there's actually like this really powerful body of research to show how nature is this incredible reset mechanism, both for cognitive function, creativity, stress management. Um, you know, it, it really, it does a lot of things to and for you, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, then you fold in its exercise which increases something called BDNF in your brain, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is miracle grow for brain cells and neurons. You know, so and you could keep deconstructing it on this level. So it's it's really there's actually there's a really good reason for you to go surfing mm-hmm. in the middle of the day. Yeah. And you know, there's a really good work reason for you to go surfing in the middle of the day. Oh yeah. I mean I've been actually contemplating rearranging my whole interview schedule to not do interviews during uh, optimal surf times. <laughs> you yeah. know, just because of, of that very reason. And I, I noticed, I mean, you know, you had talked about sort of when you see the buckets, you know, changing and, and things kind of being messy. I notice if I'm in the water for several days in a row, it's very noticeable in my overall mood, my output, um, <clears throat> what I'm able to create and all of that. Uh so yeah, absolutely. And I, I love this. And I'm really glad that we got to this portion of the conversation, which, uh, you know, it, it's funny, you mentioned having this interest in science, because, you know, I, I've been digging through some of the Good Life Project episodes, um, as I've been doing my drives to, to San Clemente to surf. And, you know, I, I'd love to talk uh, specifically about your thoughts around sort of the future of media and, and media creation, what it means for sort of the maker, what it means for the mogul, uh, you know, how it's influenced and shaped a good life project and sort of your vision going forward with all of this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I think about this constantly and, um, you know, and, and on two levels, one is how can I best serve the community that we're building? Mm-hmm. And two is how can I do work that lights me up? You know, where's the intersection between, and it's not always the same. 
you know, which is where the challenge comes in because, you know, I've got to make money at the same time and support my family. Yeah. So, you know, right now with our, with our venture, with our brand, all the revenue is on our education side. It's not on the media side. But as we grow on the media side, there are increasing opportunities to actually, um, you know, make that a substantial revenue generating part of the venture. Um, but it, not, it doesn't necessarily allow me to do what I love to do. So I, I'm looking at this now and I am, I'm increasingly enamored with audio, with radio, with podcasting for a number of different reasons. One, um, I find that the, uh, the quality of the quality of the conversations is just, is, is really good. It's more intimate. It's, um, more relaxed. It's more conversational. And I'm also increasingly a fan of as, as much as, you know, I love the fact that we can do this remotely. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing to do is actually, you know, I have like a little radio station, basically recording studio set up in my living room, also known as Good Life Project headquarters. And, um, yeah, I love to invite somebody over for a cup of coffee and sit across the table with, you know, like two microphones, two sets of cans on our heads and just face to face have that conversation. I found nothing is better than that. I love that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we filmed for a number of years with, you know, broadcast quality video with, you know, three camera shoot, professional editing. And the conversation is different when we're not filming. And I've experienced it enough times to know that, that it's, it's, it's deeper, it's more intimate, it's really powerful. So we're definitely going to be focusing on growing, um, focusing a lot of energy on really growing that partly because I enjoy it. I mm-hmm. really enjoy that. Um, and, um, I think it serves our community better. So, um, so that's going to be a big move that you guys will be, uh, that, that you'll be hearing more about in the, in the near future. Interestingly, I don't necessarily make that recommendation for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the right move for me. That's the right move for our venture and what we're doing. It's also the right move for our audience. So I know our demographics, you know, I know the age, I know where they're located, I know what their interests are, I know what their lifestyle is. You know, like we actually treat this like a real business. Mm-hmm. So I, I know who we're serving and I know, I know how they best like to consume media and inspiration and information and education. So it also aligns really well um, on that level, on a business level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I actually... Um, I'm I'm massively excited about the state of uh, audio, and we're also planning on really just upping, upping the production value of what we're doing. So the goal is to very quickly bring our podcast to more of a public radio level sure. production value, mm-hmm. um, because and and it kind of doing what I was trying to do in video. You know, when we entered video, the goal was to create extraordinary conversations. And, but also to really try and set the bar for the expectations on production value um, from individuals and say, you can do this on a radically different level. And I see there's a massive swarm to podcasting and audio and radio right now. But similar thing that happened with video is that a lot of the quality um, is cookie cutter and a lot of the production value is really bad. Yeah. And so, so on that side too, I want to kind of like raise the bar again and say – this is what's possible. You know, like even if you're not a huge player with an unlimited resource, you know, so so maybe I can afford a sound engineer and we're gonna bring things to a different level. But even if you can't do that, you can get a really basic setup and, and you can create really extraordinary production value beyond you know great conversation and, and different conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like really think about the production value and, and especially with audio, because what people don't realize is that um, I can have decent audio 
if I'm if it's on video because the video distracts from the qual the production quality of the audio. But when you move to audio only, the the production value of the audio needs to be pretty damn good because that's all there is. That's the only signal, you know. And um and when that's all there is, you know, <laughs> if it ain't good, you're gonna hear about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I'm glad, so glad you brought this up um, because you know when I look at production value, I think that that you know when you're competing against sort of the mainstream media or we're looking to the mainstream media, you know, we've kind of said, Hey, you know, the power has shifted to the individual, but again, you know, what they have that kind of makes millions of people pay attention is that their production value is extremely high. And I don't think this is just relevant to audio. I think this is relevant to whatever you create. Um, you know, I love what Julian Smith said. He said, in a world of this much noise, whatever you create has to be that much more epic than the next guy, because he said, that's how you stand out. He said, it actually matters. Uh, it, and I, the other thing I would say about sort of the swarm to podcasting is, is sort of the commitment to craft. I think that what I've seen is people trying to shortcut it by just churning out content like in a formulaic way. And I don't necessarily know that that's effective or sustainable over the long term. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's no different than any other medium, right? If yeah. you want to be an artist, like most, here's how every, every art form starts this way. Like you go, you learn from somebody who does it well or a group of people who do it well. You then generally spend like your next window of time basically being them mm -hmm. because you know it works, right? And then if you're really committed to it and if you actually, if you really want longevity in it, you start to do the work to develop your own voice, your own lens, your own worldview, you know, and and that's generally the breakout move. And I think a lot of people get stuck in the replication mode, which is a, which is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. You know, learn what the people who are who are succeeding are doing now, and then you know, like learn all the rules and then mimic them for a short period of time because that's the way that everybody begins. I'm cool with that. Mm -hmm. You know, what what I see as being a little bit sad is when people just stay there and try and replicate because I don't think that works long term. I don't think it's satisfying long term. I don't think it serves the world long term because what serves the world is when you actually develop a unique voice that you share and it in some way illuminates their experience of life. You know, and when all you're doing is replicating, then you're not going to be happy and they're not going to be happy and the entire venture won't flourish. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I think I had a way of summing it up yesterday in a conversation. Somebody asked me uh, about it. I said longevity, depth and curiosity are sort of the foundational pieces for me. Yeah, and and I love that you brought up craft also because it's the word that I'm increasingly obsessed with. You know, I think, and, and craft is not an instant thing, and I think no. that's the challenge for people. It takes you know obsessive, um, obsessively just doing it and focusing on getting better and better, and that just takes time. There's no fast track to craft. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Jonathan, this has been amazing. So I, I want to close things up with uh, my final question. I mean, you, as I said, were here two years ago, maybe even three, when we were called Blogcast FM. And, you know, over time, the, the world has changed significantly. It's noisier than it's ever been. So uh, I'm really curious, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. I think um, vulnerability and voice, you know, a, a willingness to reveal the essence of who you are and a willingness to 
lean into the process of craft long enough to develop a truly distinct voice. Wow. I love that. Well, I think that makes a perfect way to sum up our conversation. Jonathan, uh, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you back on the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, join us and share some of your insights here with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative. Yeah, thank you. It's really been my pleasure hanging out today. Yeah, and for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to The Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.